This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about changing our broken criminal justice system. For that, we turn to Jody Armour. He's the Roy Crocker Professor of Law at USC and a Soros Justice Senior Fellow of the Open Society Institute's Center on Crime, Communities, and Culture. He's been all over the place this summer talking about Black Lives Matter on NBC, CBS, ABC, MSNBC, and the NPR stations here in L.A. And now he has a new book out. It's on race, language, unequal justice, and the law. Jody Armour, welcome back. Great to be back with you, John. So what's the title of your new book? Ah, yes. Nigger Theory. And that blood-soaked epithet, that N-word, we've come up with that euphemism after the the O.J. Simpson trial when Mark Furman used it so many times that the press had to come up with some way of saying it without saying it and came up with the N-word formulation we've been using ever since. I, I take it seriously that people find that word distressing, painful, violent. It has roots in a unapologetically and avowedly racist past, and many believe that current applications and expressions of it, it's tainted fruit of the, of the poisonous tree. I understand all that, of course, agree with it 100%, but I also recognize the power of Black artists and also writers and others to harness other potential in the word. Uh, people like Tupac Shakur, Nas, Cube, Jay-Z, Dave Chappelle, for that matter. There are, a lot, there are a number of Black writers and artists who have found a way to engage in oppositional discourse through using that barb epithet contrary to its usual meaning. When Chris Rock says, I love Black people, but I hate niggas, He's using the N-word in its traditional, ugly, vicious sense. Somebody like Tupac Shakur, he's using the term as a term of endearment, as a term of solidarity, a, 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 a standing in solidarity with these brothers who I recognize as targets of this historical epithet, just like me. We both share that faith that we are what has historically been referred to as N-words here in this nation. And yet we are going to maintain our sinews of connection, our solidarity, our love and affection for one another, despite how the, other world, the rest of the world looks at us and tries to otherize us. So you open your book with a political battle cry. You say, call me the N-word. And then you quote an eloquent critic of yours who points out that Look, you went to Harvard. You're a tenured professor with a named chair. You live in a beautiful house on the top of a hill. He says, you, sir, are not an N-word. You reply to this. You have a magnificent reply to this. Uh, I'd like you to read it. I'd be glad to share this with you, John. But I say, call me a nigga first and foremost to assert solidarity with and express love for a criminally condemned man whose conviction relegated him to the status of a nigger in the eyes of many, and whose legacy lives 
in every word I speak or scribble about blame and punishment. I look at our criminal justice system through lenses ground and polished by his experience. I cannot think about legal writing without seeing a black man desperately click-clacking on a royal manual typewriter on his cell floor deep into the night in search of his own salvation. That man, doing 22 to 55 in the Ohio State Penitentiary for possession and sale of marijuana, he was my dad. All that stood between him and a lifetime of iron bars and cell blocks and prison yards was word work. Nothing but the Queen's English he and that royal keyboard could crank out. After teaching himself to talk and think like a lawyer from the warden's own law books, he drafted his own writs and represented himself pro se through the state and federal court system, delivering his own oral arguments to appellate tribunals along the way, and ultimately vindicating himself in Armour versus Salisbury, a Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals case I now teach to my first year criminal law students. Hashtag poetic justice. <laughs> Hashtag poetic justice. So your father got himself out of prison in Ohio and changed the law in America. You know, most of the focus of the movement for black lives has been on the police, police killing black people, defunding the police. But you say the prosecutors are key figures in the justice system and that radically progressive prosecutors right now are reinventing the role of the district attorney. Tell us a little about them. Oh yeah, we've come to realize that the linchpin of mass incarceration, really one of the core drivers of it is the prosecutor's office. Uh, Law and order, tough on crime DAs. We went from uh, prosecuting one out of three people who came before a prosecutor roughly for felons to almost two out of three. Prosecutorial discretion was exercised in such a way as to, as to charge as a felon. And you just do the math on that and you can see that that's going to add up to um, bulging jail and prison cells very quickly. The tide start to turn over the last four or five years with the election of people like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, in which he was elected to the head DA position as someone who'd never prosecuted a case in his career or life, who had been a public defender and defense attorney only his entire career, and ran on the following platform, in cash bail, address police misconduct, in mass incarceration, and got 75% of the voters of Philadelphia in the general election to vote for him. That, John, was unthinkable 10 years ago. And now it's an everyday reality because the Overton window has shifted that much, and I'm trying to help that shifting window with this book. A lot of the present argument about the police and the justice system demands an end to the criminalization of nonviolent, low-level drug offenses, which we are told have been responsible for mass incarceration of people of color. A lot of people are demanding that the police instead focus on the violent offender, the murderers and the rapists. Tell us about the violent offenders. When we think about criminals, we already have a population we otherize. That's why Chris Rock felt so comfortable doing it in his routine. On top of that level of otherization, there's another level that we reserve for violent criminals. We say that violent criminals are 
the worst of the worst, we don't have any sympathy, care, or concern for their well-being very often. Um, Michelle Alexander's groundbreaking work, The New Jim Crow, counted for its rhetorical efficacy on the idea that most of the people in prison are there for no, low-level nonviolent drug offenses. She said we went from 300,000 prisoners in 1980 to 2.2 million in the mid-aughts by locking up low-level nonviolent drug offenders. The reality is, as John Pfaff showed in his book, Locked In, when you look at the state system, which is where 87% of the prisoners reside, only 5 to 6% of them are there for low-level nonviolent drug offenses. When I take my students to, Qu to San Quentin and we spend time with the, in with, with the, with the people in the in, the, in San Quentin, I, I haven't seen a low-level nonviolent drug offender out there yet. I'm not saying there aren't any there. We don't run across them. What you're really dealing with, if you want to deal with decarceration and making deep cuts in mass incarceration, is racialized mass incarceration in particular, is violent and serious offenders. Most of the people going into state prisons every year are there going in for violent offenses. We have to come up with a new moral framework under the under the you know kind of new Jim Crow, the liberal new Jim Crow narrative. Under Michelle Alexander's narrative, you don't really need a new moral framework. You're just, all you need is to say that these low-level nonviolent drug offenders, who aren't any different than the rest of us, should get some leniency, some human compassion. That's all. Treat them like you would treat yourself because you're just like them. When it comes to violent offenders, you're not saying that. You're saying. I'm not like a rapist. I'm not like a murderer. You know, uh, they're not, what they did isn't an ordinary expression of human frailty, you know, across the board anyway. And so you need to come up with a new moral compass to really address how we think about, feel about, and address that population of prisoners. And that's what uh, this book, Naked Theory, is largely about. So then let's talk about what is the framework you have for treating what you call guilty black people who have committed violent offenses? We need to shift our focus from retribution, retaliation, and revenge, which has guided a lot of our penal policy for the last 30, 40 years, and still does in a lot of ways, shifted from that to redemption, rehabilitation, reconciliation, restoration. Those are just fundamentally different approaches predicated on the idea that this wrongdoer who did do something wrong, may, for example, in a violent act, caused a death and tore apart a family and caused tremendous suffering. And that can't be lowballed, downplayed, or, 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 or given short shrift in any way in any of these discussions. I don't try to, and I don't think these progressive prosecutors try to either. It's just that we try to come up with a way that can prevent that from happening again in the future, address the harm that has occurred, make sure that the wrongdoer is, is held accountable for that wrongdoing in some significant way, takes responsibility for it, owns it. You know, there are a lot of things we can do short of putting somebody in a, on a gurney and giving them a lethal injection or locking somebody up just for a life until they uh, get old and die of age or some pandemic that sweeps through uh, these prisons, which are the real hotspots of COVID-19 these days. So you say rehabilitation, redemption, and restoration, and you say that requires in us compassion and humility. Tell us about that. Yeah, the kind of humility that 
that makes you unwilling, hesitant to make righteous moral judgments of others. It's the kind of humility that says, I have some epistemic humility about my capacity to know the just deserts of others. Because, you know, it's hard a lot of times to make those decisions, even if you don't bring in the racial bias factor. When I sit down, and I've sat down in San Quentin with my students and um, men doing life without parole and um, mothers of murder victims in a program called No More Tears. And each session goes roughly the same um, that I attended with my class. Um, uh, you know, a mother of a murder victim, for example, would stand up and say, this is my loved one. Here's what losing my loved one did to our family. It tore us apart. Here's some pictures that we passed around. We see the loved one who was, 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 was killed and tore this family apart through the loss of that loved one. And then we sit with that. And then uh, uh, one of the men sends a life without parole for a um, typically a violent homicide would stand up and say, here's my victim. Here's the person whose life I took. And here's the family I caused this loss to, caused this pain and suffering to. All right. And, and let's say you have 10 minutes. He spent the first five minutes talking about that, passing pictures around. Then he spent the last half of his time saying, the person who did that, you know, who, who, who caused that death, who committed that, that heinous crime, was a depraved individual. Then he said, let me tell you how I became that depraved individual. Let me tell you about, and often the stories would be about the foster care homes I was put in from a very early age. The being locked in car trunks as a disciplinary measure for three and four hours at a time, the cigarette burns, the molestation. Let me tell you about how I became that person, right? And then we sit there with that, right? And it, it, it blunts the edge of our retributive urge to hear those other narratives, that other story about, you know, how it is that a lot of times victimizers are themselves victims. That hurt people hurt people, that morality itself is complex and we need to be, we need to embrace epistemic humility when it comes to making moral judgments in, you know, settings that are often like this, in which we just don't have all the background information and we just can't judge another's just desserts with that kind of accuracy. Hurt people hurt people. Jody Armour, his new book on race, language, unequal justice, and the law is titled Inward Theory with Inward spelled in asterisk GGA. It's out now from LARB Books. It has an introduction by Larry Krasner, the radically progressive district attorney of Philadelphia, and a magnificent foreword by Melina Abdullah, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter in Los Angeles. It's the number one new release on courts and the law at Amazon. Jody Armour, congratulations on this book. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much, John. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.